0: But when I was in school, and many of you would have this experience, and those today probably wouldn't have this, but you remember uh, if you were asked by the teacher to go out and clean the erasers, and you'd go out, you know, and you'd do that, and all the chalk dust would fill up and all, and that was, that was an exciting way to get out of the classroom. But also, uh, if you were asked, now, if it was a math problem, that was panic. But if you were asked to write on the blackboard, now today they have whiteboards and kind of the same principle, but the marvelous thing that when the teacher wanted somebody to volunteer to write something on the blackboard, but one of the wonderful things about a blackboard and a whiteboard too is that whatever you write on there, that if you make a mistake, there's this wonderful thing called an eraser. And it just kind of wipes it clean as if it never happened. You know, forgiveness works the same way. It is the cancellation of something as though it never existed. It's the deletion of an error, the ability to erase a mistake and start all over again. There's a wonderful picture in John's Gospel, in John chapter 8, of the forgiveness and grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning we're going to look at this beautiful picture before we partake of the Lord's table this morning. And if you have your, do me a couple of favors, if you would take your phones, make sure they are silent or turned off, don't assume, but please help me with that. That helps me and helps the person next to you not have that distraction. And also as a help, in the bulletin that you receive, there's a little blue sheet that's a listener guide, and that's to help you and encourage you to follow along with scripture this morning as we teach the word of God be an engaged listener and so if you will if you want to help that and make uh, get your money's worth this morning then we want to help you to do that but this morning before we look at God's word let's pray one more time heavenly father how we are grateful for your goodness in our life we thank you for lord those who have come into the Full measure of your forgiveness. We are thankful for that. We're thankful, Lord, as we have sung about this morning, we're thankful for the blood of Jesus. We thank you for that forgiveness, and we're going to celebrate as a remembrance a little later that wonderful grace of forgiveness. Lord, as we open the word today, be our teacher, be our guide, we pray in your precious name. Amen. I want you to notice several things in this passage in verse in chapter 8 verses 1 through 11. Notice first of all the atmosphere into which the woman was brought. This is a story about a woman who was brought to Christ for him to judge her. And what we find is the judge of the all the earth judging the judges that we're going to see. But notice with me as we kind of just look at the atmosphere, the context, verses 1 through 2, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Just by way of a little note, not to get lost in the weeds here, but if you have a study Bible, you might, or a uh, little more modern version, you might see verse 753 through 811 might have some brackets. There might be a note in the study Bible And among uh, kind of historical scholars that are Bible believers and legitimate, not those that want to tear down the Bible, there's some debate a little bit about the placement of this account in the Gospel of John. And kind of in a synopsis that most reliable would agree that probably John himself did not include this story there, but they do believe that it was a story that actually happened but because of some various issues there and, and manuscripts and stuff I won't bore you with. But because it fits into the flow of what John is doing. And because they believe it really was a historical story. They're just not sure in, that it fit exactly in this place in the gospel of John. That at some point it was included here. Because again it, it kind of fits into John's flow and his purpose. Remember his purpose Uh, I won't look at the scripture, but in John 20, 31, he's driving everybody towards believing in Jesus. So, and again, you may notice that, you may not, but uh, just put put that out there. But the context is that Jesus is teaching uh, early in the morning, and the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Now, in this atmosphere in this context and culture it was customary for a rabbi the teacher rabbi means teacher was sitting down and the crowd would gather around him so Jesus being a teacher this was very customary but as you know in any cursory reading of the life of Jesus he was not just he was not an ordinary teacher people were astounded uh one uh in Mark uh Mark's gospel notes the people that were hearing him talk about how they were astonished because he did not teach as the rabbis did of the day, that he taught as one who had what? Authority. Uh, rabbinical teaching only quote, they, their authority was only based upon quoting and referencing someone else in their teaching. But Jesus would stand and say, I say unto you, you have heard it said, but I say unto you, and so they were immediately drawn to his authority and not just him referencing another teacher or a rabbi, and so that was kind of the atmosphere into which this woman that we're going to see introduced here in a moment was brought, and the atmosphere was of such that those who brought this woman that we'll see in a little bit, they again thought this was the ideal time Catch Jesus. Now, as we've been studying through the Gospel of John, we see somewhat of a progression between those who are receiving Christ, who are accepting Him as Lord, who are uh, uh, identified as followers, but we also see a separation of those who are rejecting Christ, who are rejecting his message. We spent several weeks in John 6 and saw how this distinction is beginning now as we move towards the cross, as we move towards the resurrection. We see this happening in the life of Jesus. So that's the atmosphere that this woman was brought to Jesus. But notice secondly, and here we get into the accusation that was made by the Pharisees regarding this woman. The accusation, verse 3 and 4, the scribes and the Pharisees, scribes were experts in the law, Pharisees were certainly uh, experts in the law, but scribes were kind of specialists. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, Rabbi, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, what I want you to right away pay attention to is this was not just some random peeping Tom that caught a woman. This was a setup, okay? This was an intentional setup uh, to bring and test or put Jesus in a trap that would further either alienate him and cause people to question his reputation as a teacher or put him at odds with being someone who could not defend the law. It's interesting when they say in verse 4, this woman has been caught, the word caught is, is a little kind of uh, softer, but it really means to seize somebody, to overtake somebody that this woman that was caught that the men literally pulled the adulterous couple away from each other, and what's interesting is somehow in the act of seizing them and dragging her, they missed the man. Wow, how about that? That's why, again, this was not an accident, but this was a deliberate trap and setup. They were not interested in the morality and ethics of adultery, but they were using this woman as a pawn to trap Jesus. Notice what they say in verse five. Now, in the law, they're asked, this is the leaders talking to Jesus. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such woman, to stone such a woman in a, caught in adultery. What do you say? Now, notice again the. The the way that they are reasoning this and how they think that Jesus uh, they're going to trap him in this testing him and the accusation of this uh, of this woman if Jesus rejected the law if he rejected Moses and you can maybe make a reference and again Deuteronomy twenty ten and uh, or Leviticus twenty ten Deuteronomy twenty two twenty two and again there's others about the law stating about uh, adultery. Uh, sexual orienta- or sexual activity outside of marriage. Uh, if he rejected the law and say, well, just ignore what Moses said, then they can accuse him of being a lawbreaker. Certainly, they could use that as a weapon against him. But if he was soft, uh, if he rejected the law, but if he held to the law, if he said, no, we need to stone this woman, you're right, good job, boys, no, well, then his compassion and grace would certainly be brought into question. So they saw this as a perfect opportunity, as an open and shut case. It's interesting that the Sanhedrin, who functioned somewhat as the Jewish Supreme Court, uh, this was not a regular occurrence or activity of the Sanhedrin to condemn people to death. It's interesting that, that the Mishnah, which is the oral teachings of the uh, Pharisees, of the Jewish teachers, not the Old Testament, but the Mishnah, which again is a collection of the various rabbinical teachings that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and those who of the day that they were uh, following and, and attributing to authority, uh, it makes this statement. They said, if the Sanhedrin, remember that's kind of the, Supreme Court, if you will, of of Judaism, if the Sanhedrin condemned to death a person as often as once every seven years, it would be considered a slaughterhouse. Meaning, this was very infrequent to sentence anybody to death. We think it was just a regular occurrence. We think this is kind of like the Taliban, you know, this is just happening all the time, but not necessarily. But here's the thing. The law was very strict in regards to putting somebody to death caught in adultery or in adultery. And the strictness of the law required that they literally be caught in the act and that there would be witnesses. So they thought they had an ironclad case to bring to Jesus, right? But not necessarily. So that was the accusation that... She deserves judgment. You know, when you think about it, people talk about judgment. Oftentimes, people will make the statement of, uh, some will say, and you've heard it said, and I've heard it said, say, Well, you know what? We don't have any right to judge. I and mean, maybe you heard that. We don't have any right to judge. Maybe you say that. We don't have any right to judge. You know, don't judge not, lest you be judged. You know, we just, as though, Judgment as a whole is, there's no proper place for judgment. But you know what? There is a right place of judgment. When is it right to judge? And in your listener's guide, there's, and I'm just going to go through these real quick, just kind of as we uh, divert a little bit here, talking about judgment. When is it right to judge? It is right to judge, according to Scripture, it is correct and right to judge when someone rebels against Scripture. And again, these are not going to be on the screen if you want to make reference 1 Corinthians 5, 1 and 2. And this may surprise some of you, but there is a proper place after after exhausting every possible scenario that if a person who identifies as a member of the body of Christ in that local church, it is the responsibility of the church as a last resort. If that person is living in flagrant disregard in sin and rebellion against the Word of God and rebellion uh, to the church as a last resort. It is proper, and Paul even gives an example here of an immoral man, that that the church has a responsibility to put this person out of the church. Now, that's harsh, but God has a method of ensuring that there is integrity among those who identify as the church. Certainly it's not for those who aren't perfect, because guess what? If that was the criteria, you'd have to get a new pastor. And by the way, if it was a criteria, I wouldn't have anybody to preach to. So that's not the issue there. The issue, again, is it is right to judge when someone is openly, defiantly rebelling against the clear-cut Word of God. Again, we're talking about big issues here. We're not talking about whether somebody uses the King James or the Living Bible. We're not talking about somebody who speaks in tongues or doesn't speak in tongues. We're not, about, we're not talking about those side peripheral talking about somebody who their life, and in this case, it's a person living in open immorality in an adulterous relationship, and the entire church knew about it and said, Well, you know, old so-and-so, he's a member of that church. The church has that responsibility to say, no, if you do not repent, we are, you are not going to be allowed to identify as part of God's church. So that's one way. Another way, and again, these are in your, your handout there, so they're not on the screen. It's right to judge when somebody openly denies doctrinal truths of Scripture. And again, we're talking about big issues. We're not talking about inner debates with people. Paul said in Romans 16, 17 that he said, watch out for those that cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. There's a criteria and somebody should have discernment and judgment against those who uh, teach things that are contrary to the clearness of the word of God. It is thirdly right to judge when we evaluate our own walk with God. The Bible, and we'll see this a little later when we talk about in 1 Corinthians 11 about uh, the communion table and preparation, it is a right thing to judge ourselves according to the Word of God. Am I am I walking in a uprightness and godliness and holiness before the Lord? And the Bible says that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness but it says if we confess our sins if we judge ourselves by the word of God and the Holy Spirit convicts us then that's a right place and it's also right to judge it's also right to judge as we evaluate our culture and our world Listen, we need discernment. We need discernment to look at the culture instead of everything that just flows out of Netflix and Amazon Prime and the news and everything is just like a truckload of sewage. We have an obligation of God's people, even in just discerning issues and things going on in the world, to be able to discern and make a judgment that that is not of God, that that is violating... Godliness and God's standards, regardless of what the culture says or it doesn't say. So there is a right place to judge, but there's also a wrong, a wrong way to judge. Again, these are in your guide there. It is wrong to judge when judging occurs before you know all the facts. Been there, done that, right? Remember Nicodemus even... Chastised his fellow Pharisees back in chapter 7 when he said, Our law uh, judges a man. We can't judge a man without first giving him a hearing. Nicodemus said that back in chapter 7. It is also wrong to judge when judging somebody condemns another person regarding their personal convictions. It goes two directions. We don't want to, those who legalistically condemn other people because they allow or don't allow certain things, but also those who snobbishly sneer at those who might have an issue in doing something, it can work the other way that we don't judge and snobbishly sneer at, oh, look at those people. They don't know what grace is. And the other folks are looking at people that they've got sloppy agape. they got sloppy grace, right? And they just kind of let everything happen. So that works both ways. Don't judge regarding and condemning a person's personal convictions. Also, it's wrong to judge attacks or when judging that attacks another person's motives. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, not to make judgments about anyone ahead of time before the Lord's return. It says, for the Lord Jesus will bring our darkest secrets to light and will reveal our private motives. Let God do that. Don't be judging people's personal motives. Be careful of that. And then last, it's wrong to judge when judging is a display of self-righteousness. That was something the Pharisees really were, you know, they, they really were big into that for people to see and admire their righteousness because of their judgment. So there is a right place and a wrong place regarding judgment here. So we're not talking about judgment, and we're talking about an illegitimate way that they're using this woman into trapping Jesus. So we looked at the atmosphere and the accusation. Notice thirdly, the attempt to test or trap Jesus. I have the word trap there in your outline, it's the word test, but I was able to change that, I like that, at, at 6 o'clock this morning I changed it, but I couldn't change your outline, I wasn't going to reprint them, alright, so you just mark it out, alright? But it really isn't so much a test, it's more of a trap, as I said earlier, and notice a few things here in verses 6 and uh, through verse 6 through 9, notice Jesus' action. Uh, Verse 6, this they said to test him or trap him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Do you see how that is there? They're doing it to trap him, to test him, so they bring a charge against him. And then it says that Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. That's his action, but notice his answer, verse 7 and 8. And as they continued to ask him. Jesus stood up and said to them. Let him who is without sin among you. Be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. How many of you want to know what he was riding on the ground? Well I don't know. And nobody knows. There's some speculation some people uh, think that Jesus was maybe even writing parts of the Ten Commandments maybe the part about adultery maybe he was writing some names on the ground of those themselves that were active adulterers that were surrounding around him we don't know but he did it two times Interesting, the normal word in the Greek, and don't be impressed because the only Greek that I know is I think a restaurant on the south side, but I like, uh, you know, Eliot's the Greek scholar here, but I do look up and use the helps. But the right word, or the typical word used for uh, right, right in the Greek is the word grapho, graph, you know, graphing. We, get, we understand that. The word used here that's used two t- times is a little different than that. It is katographo, and it's not just to write like you're writing notes. It's to write as though you're writing an indictment. That's the word when it says Jesus wrote on the ground. It wasn't that he was just scribbling, writing, but it was a writing that was an indictment. When someone is charged with a crime what happens? The court, the legal system, produces an indictment, a written indictment exposing or writing the legal crimes of that individual. Jesus is writing an indictment, if you will, whatever is being written there on the ground. Jesus, the judge of all the universe, he's judging the judges here. And notice in verse 9, the effect on the accusers, the effect on the accusers verse 9 but when they heard it this crowd imagine this woman that's on the ground maybe barely clothed humiliated ashamed women certainly had very very little status in that in that first century culture and in verse 9 it says when they heard it the crowd the mob they went away one by one beginning with the older ones That means there were some younger ones and there were some older ones. It was a big mob. Peter Marshall, who served at one time as the chaplain of the United States Senate, some of you may have read books by his wife, Catherine Marshall, but Peter Marshall makes this observation in describing this moment. Peter Marshall says, Jesus Christ sees into their hearts, and is that moving Finger writes on the ground, idolater, liar, drunkard, murderer, adulterer. There is the thud of stone after stone falling on the pavement. One by one, they creep away, slinking into the shadows, shuffling off into the crowded streets to lose themselves in the crowd in the multitude what an amazing moment that that is but notice forth the acceptance of the woman by jesus this really drives home what we're talking about forgiveness the acceptance of the woman by jesus in verse 9 and 10 we see the saviors reception of the woman the saviors reception of the woman. Verse 9 and 10. But when they heard it. The crowd. They went away one by one. Beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone. With the woman. Standing before him. Only the woman. And Jesus. All the mob. All the ruckus. All the onlookers. His silence. And they, they want to get out of there. Did They do a backstory? Backdoor shuffle. They want to get away from there. Because of the conviction. Think about it. Jesus says. He who is without sin. Cast the first stone. Do you realize. The only one in that group. That could obey that and do that. Is who? Jesus himself. But what does Jesus choose to do? Jesus choose to accept her. And he said. Verse 10. Woman. Woman where are they? Where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? Also in verse 11, she answers the beginning of verse 11. She says, no one, Lord. We see the woman recognize Jesus's authority. She said, no one, Lord. Now, does that mean she understood all the ramifications of the identity of Jesus? His uh, second person of the Trinity Godhead and she knew all about his preexistence, as John says in the beginning was the word no but you know what she responded to the truth that she was given she knew that this man was like no other man and she said no one Lord the Bible says in Romans 10 9 that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What she's doing, she's recognizing his authority. That's what Lord means. There's this idea that we can check the box of Jesus as our Savior, get hell punched where we don't, you know, we're, we're going to go to heaven. And then that way, we still can manage and govern our own lives any way we please. That's foreign to the Word of God. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. That ownership belongs to Him. He's managing my life. He's the authority in my life. And in a very simple way, but in a very effective way, this woman recognized the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice in also in verse 11, the Savior's refusal to condemn the woman. The Lord Jesus' refusal to condemn the woman. She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. What a wonderful picture of grace and forgiveness. But one last observation is the woman's responsibility before God. This is really important. She said, no one, Lord. No one is here to accuse. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. And then in the latter part of verse 11, Jesus said, go. And from now on, sin no more. Jesus is literally saying, leave your life of sin. Jesus is saying to the woman, take responsibility of your life. Quit blaming men. Quit blaming this person or that person. Take responsibility. And from this moment forward, stop. Stop doing that which is wrong, which God says is wrong. Go and sin no more. Don't miss a couple of important things here. Don't miss the fact that Jesus, in saying this and forgiving, does not dismiss her sin he will die for her sin you want to see what god thinks of sin look no further than the cross of the payment the price but what does he tell her he doesn't dismiss her sin he doesn't say you know hey it's all good just keep doing what you're doing Something funny I threw in here that some of you know, the name James Dobson, Focus on the Family. Something he one time reported seeing a sign on a Catholic convent in Southern California. And the sign read, absolutely no trespassing, violators will be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. And it was signed, the Sisters of Mercy. Look, Jesus is merciful and gracious. The righteous judge wants to forgive her. He offers mercy and grace. He knows the scripture in Micah 6.8. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and walk humbly with your God. Jesus was not only willing to forgive her past. He did not dismiss her sin. He didn't say it was just societal problems. He said, go and sin no more. Stop doing that of what God's, God's word says is sin. You know, we've changed and everybody has problems. We have struggles. We have issues. No, the problem is sin. That which is a violation, that's which uh, violates the word of God. But notice also something else that Jesus does is notice that Jesus Christ will not only forgive her past, but he also challenges her future by what he says about go and sin no more. Jesus confronted the woman's life. He wasn't given a free pass. He wasn't given an easy out. He didn't say, it's all right, don't worry. No, no, no. He says, go and stop living a life of adultery. Quit living a promiscuous life. Quit wasting your life. So he challenges her from that moment forward. Of what she can become as a person of grace. Maybe this morning you need to be reminded or even challenged. Because we all have a past, don't we? We all have a past. But with Christ, only in Christ do we have a future. You know, the Bible never tells us what happened to this woman. A lot of speculation, but it doesn't tell us. It's kind of a it's an unfinished story. And so is your story. So is my story. If you're a hero and you're alive, your story and my story is still being written. We still have opportunity to allow Jesus to deal with our past. But we also have an opportunity for Jesus to give us a future. Close your eyes and just a moment before we prepare our hearts this morning. Nobody moving, nobody distracting. Maybe there's somebody here this morning that you needed this message. You needed a reminder that the Lord Jesus Christ is willing and ready to forgive. He's full of grace. He's full of mercy. And this morning, you're not a believer. You're not a, you may be a member of a church. You may have even been baptized as an adult. And it's a wonderful thing, your parents, and wanting to put you on a right path. It's no criticism of them. But you know you have never made that choice and that decision to follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You still claim erroneously, to hold the title deed to your life. Jesus already owns you. You just need to say, Lord, take over my life. God, you know my past. Do you realize nobody knows your past more than the one who made you? He even knows those things other people don't know about. All those secret things. He knows everything about it. And what does he say? He said, neither do I condemn you. It's not saying those things are right. But he says, but... There's a future from this moment. Trust in me. Have faith in me. And go and live a life that's not wasting away in sin and rebellion. This morning, while in just the quiet here this morning, if you here this morning do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you know, I'm not going to ask you to do anything, because all you have to do is ask Him in your own heart, in the quietness of your own heart, a simple prayer and say, Lord Jesus, come into my life. Save me. Forgive me of my sin. Get, put my life on a path that has a future and has a hope. Lord, break, break the chains of sin that have bound me, that keep me from being everything that God you've made me to be. Lord Jesus, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Create new desires in my life. Give me a new life. Make me that new creation that you promise. And I believe in the simplicity of praying that prayer that you've become a believer. You've become a follower of Jesus. But Jesus says, go and sin no more. Jesus says, walk. You know, we didn't read this, if I can go back to it. Jesus says in verse 11, the latter part of verse 11, I'll give them a second, maybe they can find it, 8 11. Notice what Jesus says after he says, Go, and from now on, sin no more. Look at verse 12. Or, yeah, verse 12. And Jesus spoke to them, saying, and he was saying this to whoever else was listening, but also to the woman. He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me, Follows me. Whoever claims to be a follower of me, whoever follows me, will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It's not saying they're ever going to stumble and fail and sin. He's not saying that. But he's saying the one who identifies with me as a disciple, as a follower, as a Christian, they will not be marked as a life that is living in continual darkness because they're living in the light i'm thankful for however in god's sovereign purposes of ordering and putting together scripture that this story is here in the word of god we need this story we need the grace and mercy that the story and it's consistent with john